when you're running 26.2 miles, you're putting your body through an immense amount of stress. And if you are trying to fuel that on carbohydrate or on fats, you're not allowing your glycogen to come back up. You're relying on your body being in ketosis, which ultimately means at some point you're going to have a hormonal imbalance. What that looks like is, and something I would also advise, I'm not sure if you ever did this, but before a training cycle, if you're serious about competing, obviously you were to get to Boston, get your blood work done. See where your blood work is at. See where your iron levels are at. Make sure that your cortisol is okay. Your inflammatory markers are okay. If those are fine and you're not supplementing with carbs, what's going to happen is your body is going to start taking some of your sex hormones, testosterone, progesterone, and converting it to cortisol. So now cortisol goes up when you're exercising anyway, but if you're not fueling it with what it needs as an energy source, carbs, you're just adding fuel to the fire for a hormonal disaster. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, which I might need to rename for the day to simply Sports Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, and I'm joined by Nikki Boyd today to talk about the world of sports nutrition and everything that you need to support your health as you're going through massive training ventures. I've trained for and run successful marathons myself. I've competed in mountain biking for more than 30 years. I've had some way that I was always trying to get my very best out of my performance. And Nikki's no stranger to that as well. She has been a nutritionist for close to eight years now, but has a long history as a dancer as well. She's had her own battles with health and food for years and even was diagnosed with hypothyroidism back in 2016. This is a condition I've also contended with. So again, we'll have a ton to talk about. She serves as a director of nutrition at the 12. Wow. Nikki, welcome to the show. What a kind intro. I am so humble. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I want to first start off by talking about your history as a dancer, because I think this will lay into a lot of what we discussed today, your relationship to food, how you really ultimately figured out what was going to work best to help your body sing and perform its best. And then also what we're going to do in the space of training for marathons and getting the right nutrition to support that journey every step of the way. That is an awesome place to start. So it's been quite a journey. I was dancing since I was three, but I really didn't get into that body image issue until I was probably 14 or 15. And then, you know, things start to change physically and you start to mature and you start to hit puberty. And at that time I was very into ballet, was actually training with the Pennsylvania Ballet. And I would say then I started noticing this stigma about food being the enemy. So you would see girls as young as 14 and 15 with hardly anything on our plate. Let's keep in mind that, you know, at that age, you're training for six to eight hours a day. And when you're that young, you can get away with a lot. But what's really difficult is that mindset that food isn't needed as fuel really continued with me up until well past college, I would say. So college was a big point because that was when the time I actually started dancing professionally. I actually danced with the Lakers, an amazing experience, but there was a lot on body. I want to say body image and looking back, rightfully so. I mean, you were in front of everybody. Our director definitely had 
expectations placed on her that she had to give down to us. And what was interesting there, it was it brought back a lot of this fear of food for me because we were weight. And I can understand that because everybody gets in shape for this audition and you look amazing during this audition, but season doesn't start till, you know, a couple months later. And a lot of the girls were starting to look differently. So I would say this limiting belief that food wasn't necessarily a source of fuel started really heavily when I was in college. And I went from being very mindful of not eating a lot to actually trying to work off every calorie I put in my body. And that's exhausting, just for the record. So it wasn't until, very long story short, I'd say got married and went through fertility treatments where I realized that these years of this lack of nutrients was actually affecting my cycle. And it was really hard for me to get pregnant. And it ended up not being in the cards for my husband and I to have kids. But it was back in that moment, 2013, where I realized we need to really address this because not only is it affecting my hormonal health, it was affecting my marriage and it was affecting my moods. So that was when the shift really started. And then once we started getting into running and training, man, a lot of walls come down and a lot of truth comes out. And so I guess that's kind of where it all began. So I want to talk to you a bit about this experience of moving from, let's say, your experience and being a nutritionist over the last eight years, now personally training for your first marathon. Because I went through this myself, you know, I had what I thought was the perfect supplement regime. I felt like I had the best nutrition and then I started training for marathons. And when I hit about the eight or 10 mile mark, I mean, what's the term? I bonked heavy. So I would love to know your perspective and how you've adapted your nutrition to your current training. Where are you in your training? When's your first race day? Let's get into the whole story. So this actually is perfect timing. I've actually ran a marathon last February. So that was my first one. And I have to say that training cycle has been very, very different than this training cycle. So I preface that because when you're trying to run a marathon for the first time, honestly, you're just like, can I get through 26.2 miles? Can I actually run that far? So I noticed a lot. It was very different that first cycle. I knew I needed to fuel more. You're right. If I didn't start fueling during my runs, which was really, really challenging, then it hits you like a train of bricks. And the term bonk, for those of you that don't really know, it's like you're running for one second and then you feel fine. And it's literally like that. All of a sudden, the energy is gone. You want to stop. There's no motivation. And it's really, really hard to come back from that. And that is a pure sign that you have not fueled properly. You are completely depleted of your glycogen. And coming back from that is really hard to do. So the first time around, I have to say a lot of it was just a lot of trial and error. I did not nearly fuel as much going into my long runs that I should have. The reason why I think it's interesting this time around, so my second marathon of the season is the Long Beach Marathon, which is about seven weeks away in October. And this time it's a little different. This time I'm actually shooting for a specific time. And that means racing 26.2 miles, not just getting through 26.2. So what I noticed, and this actually is perfect timing, is July, I came back full force from an injury. So June, I had plantar fasciitis. I was out of running for three months. June was just, let's see if she can still run. And July, the speed training started to pick up. And here's the thing about the body. 
If you're running at a lower intensity, you can get away with a lot. Meaning if you're running where your heart rate's a little bit lower, 10 miles per hour, let's say, or 10 minute mile, your fuel storages will last longer. But the faster you run, you are depleting so fast. And what I realized was my nutrition that worked last training cycle is no longer working this cycle because I'm running faster and I'm noticing that 30 minutes into these runs, I'm done. That means I have to fuel. I have to do something. So I would say the entire month of July between me and you was a big trial and error and a massive fail because I went from, I don't think I need this many carbs. You know, I didn't before to realizing mid run you do, you're not performing the way you should. And I wasn't recovering the way I should. I was exhausted. I mean, I just felt like I couldn't like the speed that I knew was there was not happening. And there comes this point where you have to make a decision. Either I'm going to change the way I eat and let go of some preconceived notions, or I'm just going to continue to perform subpar. And that is not in my DNA. So I started doing a lot of research on endurance. I'd say competitive racing. And I realized a couple of things. Number one, your body can hold a lot more glycogen than you think. So I was maybe eating 180 grams of carbs a day. I'm well over 300 right now well over 300. And on days before a long run, it's sometimes 350. That morning, I used to maybe fuel with like just a bagel, which is 50 grams of carbs. I'm doing two now and fueling every 30 minutes. And it is night and day, which is kind of hard because in this society where we're like, ah, I don't want to eat so many carbs, carbs are bad. But for marathon training and for endurance training, and if you're trying to hit a time, you need to avoid that bonk altogether, which means always making sure that your glycogen is completely filled before you feel like trash, right? Well, I understand. And I empathize with you. I also think we should temper this a bit because if somebody thinks, oh, I'm going to start marathon training, I should eat a giant bowl of spaghetti before I start running. That's not what we're talking about here. The reality for me, when I was training for my first marathon, I ran Honolulu. And the thing I could not prepare for was the fact that it was so blazing hot and humid. So cooling down was a major problem. And I had done all of my training in Santa Cruz County, where on a hot day, you could even find a cool place to run that was at the perfect temperate 60 degrees almost every day of the year, right? Maybe a little cooler, but generally speaking, able to find something where you could thermoregulate easily. And what I will say is that I started to understand bonking when I was in my first set of marathon training, even preparing for the half marathon, because we would do 10 and 12 mile runs. And what I noticed personally was that if I just had one of those gooey things on board and at about mile six, slurped it down, whether or not I felt like I needed it, that I would have a more successful run. And the symptom for me that would always come first, the thing that triggered my knowledge that I needed to actually fuel that would come before I felt like I'd completely hit in a wall is that my legs would just start to feel heavier. And the reason my legs would start to feel heavier is because my glycogen stores were kind of depleting, right? Like it just felt hard. Each stride was just a little harder. It wasn't that I was breathing harder. It wasn't that I felt like I was less able to continue running. But the moment I started to realize that my legs were feeling a little bit heavy, if I then supported myself with a goo or a shot block or something like that, I was able to continue a little bit better. The other trick I started doing, which I tired of when I was running full length marathons, but I would actually put an electrolyte style mix in my water bottles 
And that was fine when I was running a shorter run. But the moment I started doing the full 20 mile runs and things like that, I would get sick of the sweetness of it. I wanted just pure water to kind of like wet my mouth and quench my thirst and keep going. And so I wonder for you, if you're running into something similar, if you've found like you have your perfect mix of the supplementary things that you bring with you on your run to ensure that you can have a success for one of these longer training runs. I feel like this podcast was meant to be at this time because everything that you just said, ironically, I just experienced, I just ran a half marathon this last Sunday. And you said a couple of things that are really, really important is heat and what's considered hot in the running world is not necessarily considered hot for everybody else. So it was 75 degrees in Long Beach. That is a hot run. That is a very hot run with no shade with 75% humidity. So what that means is you need to not only be on top of your fuel, but hydration is huge. And admittedly, let's be totally transparent. I was not hydrated. And in fact, It's funny you said mile six because mile six, I started cramping a little bit, which is very abnormal. And cramps to me is a sign of dehydration. But I don't know if any of you have ever raced a marathon or if you've raced any race, just a heads up. There is water on the course, but they're in these cups. And it's really hard to grab the cup and actually get it into your mouth. So I didn't really hydrate at all. The reason why I said that is it's made me completely rethink my strategy for running this actual marathon. So you said a couple of things that are really, really important. When you're running any distant race, even if it is in fall or winter where it's 50s or 60s, which is considered pretty ideal for running, you are still sweating. And what people don't realize is that you're not just sweating water. And even though you want water, you really need to replace it with electrolytes. If you don't, and when we talk about electrolytes, we're talking sodium, potassium, and calcium are the main ones. A lot of your electrolyte drinks will have a lot of sodium, but they won't balance it with potassium or calcium. And that's when you can start cramping. So finding a really, really good one, I absolutely love Scratch Labs, S-K-R-A-T-H. It's just a perfect hybrid. So when you're training, what I have found for me is I actually will run with a handheld water bottle. It's not ideal, but what I know is my tummy is really sensitive. So getting the hydration in, even though you technically sometimes want water, if you guzzle water, it's going to sit in your gut and it may not necessarily replace those electrolytes that your body needs so that you can perform. And that's what we're really looking to do. So my nutrition strategy is I take a gel and the gels that you guys can take, there's definitely levels of, I'd say, which is really great versus maybe not the best, but you ultimately need to find one that's going to work for you. And that's trial and error, but it is nutrition. And you want to take one every 30 to 45 minutes like you said, whether you feel like you need it or not. And what that also means is that you're probably going to have to take some time to train your gut. And this is something that I didn't know was possible, but it is. Meaning if you've never run and fueled while you're running, you can't expect all of a sudden to be taking in gels and water and not feel some stomach discomfort. That's why these marathon training cycles are like 16, 20 weeks. You could probably run the distance before then, but you've got to figure out what works for your system. So Personally, for me, I'm taking a water bottle. It does have an electrolyte drink in it. When that runs out, if I'm out running a long run, I'll just refill it with regular water. Or luckily on the beach path where I'm at, there's actually water stations. If it were a race, I would then resort to using what's on the actual course. But fueling every 30 minutes, and that doesn't necessarily mean guzzling down a gel. Your body starts getting into the mode of digesting, even if you're just, you have some of it in your mouth. So a lot of times my husband makes fun of me. 
I'll have a gel in my hand and squeeze half of it into my mouth and just kind of let it sit there and eventually swallow it. And if you take the time to do that, like you said, you're still getting your nutrition in and the likelihood of you feeling that fatigue drastically drops. Another thing I want to talk about is race day, because I know you're coming up to that moment. I mean, I've run five half marathons and three full marathons, including the Boston Marathon. And so that one was probably the most nerve wracking, considering I had trained so hard for it. I also was recovering from a plantar fasciitis issue. It was mostly resolved, but I was taking an anti-inflammatory at the beginning of the race just to make sure. And ultimately, there can be quite a few nerves that crop up. And when you have that kind of nervous belly and you're trying to fuel, it can create a bit of a disaster. And I will say that having had to stop at one pit stop for a the use of a porta potty on the race at about the 26th mile when I was running the Boston Marathon, it's not always the prettiest sight for that reason. So I'm just going to leave that to people's imagination. Okay. If there's runners out there, all of you know exactly what that feels like. Yeah. I mean, I thankfully it was just, I had to pee because I had hydrated so well throughout the race. I just couldn't hold it anymore. But there are issues where people get upset tummies to the point of having the other kind of issue come out. And it's not always pretty. And I even saw some issues on the race itself where people were obviously, well, that is common, especially with a marathon like Boston. No one wants to stop. And I'm right there with you. That's about all I can talk about without trying to be too crude. Everybody's <laughs> trying to get their personal record. Let's just put it that way. And so let's talk about those jitters before, how it can affect your stomach, and what you might do to help ensure your success. Then I'll share my story. First of all, I didn't know that you ran the Boston Marathon. So that's amazing. That is so exciting. I'm running my first one in April. So I actually may be asking you about those Newton Hills, see how that goes on. So there's two schools of thought when it comes to race day. I'll be very honest with you. I get very nervous the week before race day. So God bless my husband. He can like sense my anxiety and it's pretty intense and it's very much self-imposed, but let's be honest, guys, sometimes you just get nervous and there's not a whole lot you can do to like calm yourself down. So there's a couple of things that I've learned that have helped. And I like to back it up to the week before race day. So it's depending on the length of your race, let's say for this example, it's a marathon. There is a lot of validity to loading your carbohydrates about three days before, sometimes four, depending on what your weight is before the race. The reason why this is important is because sometimes those nerves are so bad that race day morning, nothing you eat is going to go through you no matter what. And so what you don't want to do is wait till like just the day before the race to load all these carbs, you may not be topping off your reserves. So something that I've learned is take it back to like the Sunday before that race. And this, we could get into the science behind it, but basically you're eating about one and a half times as many carbohydrates as you normally would, depending on whatever that may be. It's like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, about three days before, and then about Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're basically doubling your carbohydrate intake. For example, I'm just going to use myself. That would be around 400 grams of carbs. Now don't freak out because there's a lot of carbohydrate drinks out there that like easily help you get some carbs in your stomach. If you have issues, you still have three days to kind of allow the stomach to settle a little bit. The reason why you want to do this is because what if you do wake up race day happened to me and you try to eat. And you physically are so nervous that you can't get something down in your system. 
you don't want that last meal to be like your be all end all. You want to still have reserves in the tank just in case that meal doesn't work. So preloading your carbs is huge. And then stick to very, very bland foods. This is not the time to get sexy with spices. This is not the time to get creative. You really need to stick with a, I would say if you have a sensitive stomach, one or two carbs. So like a rice or a whole grain pasta, this is one of those cases where starches are really great. If you have a sensitive stomach, you actually want to avoid something like a sweet potato or vegetables because that's got more fiber in it. And then on race morning, do the best you can. And if you can't get all those carbohydrates in, allow yourself to at least still drink some electrolytes and get up early. This is the biggest thing that I I have learned. If you're a race, get up about three hours before you race. And you kind of got to switch off your mind and go, you know what? I need some serious time to digest. So if my race is at seven, I'm up at four, sometimes 345 and getting trying to get my breakfast in. This gives me a couple of hours if anything needs to exit my system before I actually get to the starting line. So hope that helps preload and get up early. So we've spent a bit of time talking about carbohydrates. And before we transition to other topics, because of course you can't just survive on carbs. The reason we're talking about it so much is because your sugar store needs go up drastically when you're training for distance athletics. But I wanted to share with you a couple of tidbits about race day at Boston because I think my learnings from that will be applicative to everybody listening. First of all, they take care of your early arrival because they take you from the downtown area where it ends and that bus leaves at a specific time and you're being dropped off 26.2 miles away at the start line a couple hours before the race starts. So that part, you don't have to worry about. You have to get up early, period. Good to know. Secondarily, there's a couple things that I was taught as I was first beginning my training with team and training. First, it was that as soon as you get to the start line, get in line for the bathroom. After you get done going to the bathroom, maybe wait a half hour, get back in line to that bathroom over and over again, because many people will suffer from just a little bit of a nervous bladder where it just feels like you got to pee a little bit. And it's best to do all of that evacuation as much as possible while you're continuing to hydrate at the start line. The other thing is to take small sips of water continually throughout your race, as opposed to just when you're thirsty, and that will really support your success. I appreciate you wanting to run with a handheld bottle. That for me, my hands sweat, and then I don't like it. I'd find that I would end up getting a stitch on one side or the other sometimes if I had the bottle in one hand for too long. And so I went to the Nathan belt. I have one that has four small bottles, and I would actually use it. So I had my electrolyte bottle on one side and on the other side, I would have my water just to clean water because I would tire again of just having the electrolyte flavor in my mouth when I was running. And this is probably something that seasoned runners who have done these kinds of races intrinsically understand and get, but I think it's just helpful for us to put it out there. Yes, it may look a little dorky, but nobody cares when you're running 26.2. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And it's funny you brought up the Nathan belt. I was thinking about that too. So I know I need to carry something. Am I excited about a handheld? Gosh, no, you hit the nail on the head. You're like kind of lopsided. But thank you for actually saying that because I knew I was forgetting to do something, which was to look into a hydration belt. And you know what? You brought up a really good point. Boston, just for those of you guys that don't know, there's a big difference between just running a local marathon or a major marathon. Boston is a major. Boston is probably the biggest major. And there are athletes from all over the world, which is why you have to get there so early. So 
what you said makes so much sense. So much sense just about getting in line and going to the bathroom and having to wait and get there so early. Oh, I'm already getting anxiety just thinking about it in a good way. It's very exciting. The other thing I will advise you, it's it starts out as a downhill marathon. And the mistake many people make is they go too fast in the beginning and you basically beat your quads to hell. So because you're going too fast in the beginning and you're running downhill, you have to keep in mind, you have to be able to make it up that hill later, right? Like, cause it's going back up and the hills are slow grades. If you've done a ton of hill training the way I have here in Santa Cruz County, it was a breeze. I was like, what are people going on about? Like, this is nothing. This hill is like, it's a baby hill. Like it doesn't even go for that long. It's not that punishing. You hit the nail on the head. I had four friends run Boston this year and all of them did the same thing. They went out super fast, felt great, didn't realize that their quads were being smashed running downhill. Six Mile 16 comes around, you start heading up Heartbreak Hill and they're like, I'm done. It wasn't that the hill was that bad. It's just, you're going too fast, starting too fast. I'm so glad you and said the that. the excitement of it, because people always go faster in the beginning than they intend to. So the thing that you're working to do in your training, if you can at all, one of the keys to success for those super long distance runs is to consider you want your first half and your second half to be almost the same time. So if you ran your marathon in four hours, the first half should be like, you should go that 13.1 and right about two hours. And the second half should be right about two hours. If you find that you're going out too fast and your first half is way faster than your second half, you're burning out by that second half. And so it's really a key to success is to pace yourself, especially in the beginning. Don't allow yourself to get sucked with the crowd that is going faster. You'll end up passing most of those people later on anyway. Such good advice, by the way, for everybody listening. I just had a conversation with my coach and I'm just being honest here. I went out too fast on the half, way too fast. And I think that's why mile six stunk. My marathon in February, my first one, the first half was my best half marathon. And then mile 20 hit. And it was those last six miles where I was like, oh my gosh. So we literally just had this discussion yesterday and his exact words were, you cannot go out too fast. I don't care if you feel like you could run a million miles, you need to stay within your pace. And it is hard because everybody's running past you. And sometimes if you're competitive, you're like competing with the guys that are running past you. And you're like, holy cow. But that is some of the best advice and some of the hardest to take too, because in your mind, you're like, I just want to get it over with. Let's just go. Let's just go. Well, I know I considered Boston my victory lap, which is, I think the other best advice I got from my personal trainers and training for that marathon. Look at this as your victory lap. You got to Boston. Where are you going to go next? Like, are you looking to be, you know, one of these elite runners that can compete at two hours and 15 minutes and running a full marathon? That's never going to be me. That's never going to be me either. You know what? You're right. Like when is enough acceptably enough for you, right? Now, granted, Boston was my personal record and by a lot, I had trained really hard for it and I was very pleased with my results, but it wasn't just the carbohydrates that helped me get there. I will say that too. And I also want to clarify a couple of things. I think I may actually take this question and put it at the front of our interview for this very reason, because you've talked a lot about carbohydrates and increasing your carbohydrates from, let's say, 180 grams a day to three or even 400, which sounds insane to anybody who knows how much that actually is. But let's talk for a moment about how many carbohydrates are in a standard American diet. Like if you are eating your French fries and your burgers, what are these people consuming to help put it in perspective of where you might have been before if you're a standard American diet eater 
if you're the healthy eater you were before you started this, and if you're training for a marathon. So let's give these three perspectives. That's a really great point. So if you are just the average, an average American, let's say that you're not necessarily nutrition focused, I think you'd be surprised at how much you're actually consuming. If you eat French fries, if you eat pancakes, even if you eat a bag of Skittles, something that is not necessarily the least lesser clean carbohydrates, you're probably getting upwards of 400, 500 grams of carbs. I mean, you don't realize it because a lot of it isn't necessarily nutrient dense. A great example would be pretzels. Let's take something that you can mindlessly eat. You can eat a bag of pretzels and that's 200 grams of carbs, but you don't feel full. So it's not nutrient dense. So yeah, 400 grams of carbs sounds like a lot, but if you're not paying attention to it, it's really easy to very much get there if not above there, especially if you're eating out like fast food. You mentioned French fries, even sweet potato fries, the healthy version, right? You're still getting a lot of carbohydrates whether you know it or not, you're just getting excess fat with it. And it's not necessarily nutrient dense, which doesn't give you the same amount of energy. When it comes to just somebody trying to healthfully get 400 grams of carbs in, and that's just an example, it may not necessarily be that much for you. It's very difficult, especially trying to get something to to getting nutrient dense carbohydrates in. It's almost impossible to sit down over the course of four or five meals throughout the day and eat enough carb. Like that's like two cups of rice twice a day, you know, I'm just throwing it out there, maybe some bagels, some graham crackers. That's a lot. And you've also got to remember, you got to get protein in there. Your muscles can't recover with that. So that's where a lot of mindful carbohydrate eating would come in, which is okay. My dinner, for example, I'm going to have X amount of carbohydrates. Like tonight, I know I'll have 90 grams of carbs in the form of rice because I got to get up and train the next morning and you work backwards. And that's where carbohydrate drinks come in, like a carbolin or like something that is an electrolyte drink that may have 20 or 40 grams of carbs in. So you're able to get it in in a more clean manner, but it's more focused. And I forget what the third one that you said was. There were three types. So remind me. Oh, no, I was just saying if you were doing standard American diet, your pre-training, like when you were just healthy eating for your standard physical fitness and then the marathon training. Yeah, pre-marathon training, like the marathon training is over, we're done. For me, the carbo, obviously the carbohydrates drop down quite a bit. And that's where we can get really specific based on your output. So the average individual, I would say that is healthy or working out, you're probably going to be about 30 to 35% of your diet is going to be carbohydrates. And that for myself, I'm 115 pounds, that could be like 135, 140. And that's actually fairly easy to get in. If you eat a starch carb for breakfast, maybe a little bit of starch, like in the form of a sweet potato. And then maybe one other, like three times a day, you're getting starches in, but you're able to get in that 35% balance roughly. And it could be 30, 35%. But when you're going into training mode, roughly 80% of your diet is carbohydrates, maybe 75, 20% is going to be protein. So we can't forget about that. That's super important. And you're just really not relying as much on that fat because you're so carbohydrate heavy. Right. Well, I think that makes perfect sense. Now, you and I offline and in earlier conversations have talked about our problems with the keto diet. And I think that this- What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, that this makes sense to cover now because this is almost like the anti-keto diet. There are several reasons that keto doesn't work for most people and definitely over the long term. And what you will find if you are on the super keto diet is that if you're on it for a long time, you, you plateau- because your body actually needs carbohydrates for your muscles to function. 
And without getting the correct balance of carbohydrates, you know, your body just starts to hold on just like it would in any extreme diet. But you most definitely cannot train for a marathon on keto successfully. It's so ironic you bring this up. So you always hear these, I mean, you can't, guys, let's just be honest, like your body is designed to run on carbohydrates. And both you and I know, when you have something like hypothyroidism, you've got to be very mindful of how many carbohydrates you can have. If you restrict carbohydrates, you're actually putting stress on your body, which in my case, I have antibodies on my thyroid that can increase the anti or the inflammatory response. We don't want that. This is about long-term health too. But there are those very few individuals that claim they can do endurance training on a keto diet. And I would argue maybe for one race, but long-term, that is a recipe for disaster. Just like take away the energy aspect of it. You're putting your body through an immense amount of stress when you're training, when you're running 26.2 miles, you're putting your body through an immense amount of stress. And if you were trying to fuel that on carbohydrate or on fats, you're not allowing your glycogen to come back up. You're relying on your body being in ketosis, which ultimately means at some point you're going to have a hormonal imbalance. What that looks like is, and something I would also advise, I'm not sure if you ever did this, but before a training cycle, if you're serious about competing, obviously you were to get to Boston, get your blood work done. See where your blood work is at. See where your iron levels are at. Make sure that your cortisol is okay. Your inflammatory markers are okay. If those are fine and you're not supplementing with carbs, what's going to happen is your body is going to start taking your, some of your sex hormones, testosterone, progesterone, and converting it to cortisol. So now... Cortisol goes up when you're exercising anyway, but if you're not fueling it with what it needs as an energy source, carbs, you're just adding fuel to the fire for a hormonal disaster. And coming from experience, Karina, I'm sure you can agree, when your hormones are off, forget about performing well. Your quality of life just goes down the hill and it's terrifying. I mean, for me, it was terrifying. So I understand I mean, the keto diet came about, it wasn't ever meant to be a weight loss diet. I think we discussed this before. I mean, it was meant for people that had type two diabetes, arguably Alzheimer's, where carbs were fueling the disease and we wanted to actually eliminate them so that we could slow the onset of Alzheimer's or get diabetes under control. It was never meant to be a long standing weight loss diet. So maybe there's that one or two out there, but I'm a hard, very hard no when it comes to endurance training and the keto diet. I think this will be a resounding theme people hear in this podcast, but generally speaking, balance is key. And having a balanced diet that is set for what your individual needs are is going to be key to long-term success in everything you do when it comes to your health. Now, before we prepare to wrap this show, really get into the supplement side of things. And then I have a couple of suggestions if you're not already implementing them that may actually support your training. <laughs> Always always down for suggestions. I feel like anything at this point, what did you want to know about supplement wise, what I'm currently taking? Yeah, I would just love for you to walk us through like your supplementary regime. Cause of course you have your diet. We've talked a bit about that, you know, really making sure you're getting the quality carbohydrates in your diet, but of course there's more to this story. So what are you taking on the daily at this point, as you're preparing to run that 26.2 in a few weeks? I'm so glad you brought this up. So I do want to say that I did recently get my blood work done and I got it done in July because I was noticing I was very fatigued. I actually found out my iron is a little bit low. And as you know, that can be an issue. So 
at the moment, common in runners, very common in runners. You know what? Let's also address that. The more vigorous you train, you're probably going to deplete your iron. Right. That's exactly right. Because you break up your muscles. Just get your blood checked. Because I've been taking an iron supplement for years now, but even if it's just a little bit low. So iron is a big one for me. I actually am doubling up on that five days a week. Okay. Here's the list. A solid multivitamin. There's no way, even with all the food you're getting, you're getting every single vitamin and mineral through food just because so much of it is based on certain types of carbs. So take a really great multi. As you and I are both fans of, I take a very high dose of omega-3s. That is a non-negotiable. If I forget all my supplements, there's two I take, iron and (laughs) omega-3. I like to personally take break my dose up. I'll actually take part of it in the morning and part of it before I go to bed, just so that there's some omegas in my system to help me actually repair. I take CoQ10. So that's a common supplement. I wouldn't necessarily say it's mandatory, but it does help with heart health and especially heart recovery if you're doing a lot of endurance training. So I do take CoQ10. I take a B complex that's heavy on vitamin B12. You know that the higher you exercise or the more you exercise- Water soluble vitamins, all of them. All of them, all of them. And I actually do a multivitamin or a vitamin and actually then liquid vitamin B12 drops as well, just because anything liquid is going to absorb much better. I actually take a turmeric supplement. It tastes terrible, Karina. (laughs) It tastes utterly terrible. It's liquid. It's curcumin resveratrol, which is known to help with inflammation as well. So I take a teaspoon of that. I also take two teaspoons of medical grade collagen. So this sounds like a lot, but at some point you just kind of get used to taking it. Collagen is for coming back from any injury, plantar fasciitis. Right. All the connective tissue. Right. hundred percent vitamin D. I take 10,000 IUIs a day. And as I think, I don't remember if we talked about this, but fatigue can also be a sign of low vitamin D. So I make sure I take that as well. Those are the pills. Those are the main things. Protein shake, hundred percent at least one scoop of glutamine. And that guy's glutamine is just an amino acid that your body just depletes very rapidly and it can be mixed with any drink. And then what I have learned is, I know it's not necessarily like a daily supplement, but at least two to three scoops of an electrolyte drink a day. Well, so far there's there's not a single thing that I would necessarily remove from that list, especially as you're training for a marathon. But if you would add, I'm always open. I will give you one more big tip because this actually... I improved my mile speed by one minute with one thing. I'm so listening. One minute is big, right? It's huge, guys. (laughs) Overnight, which was really, really surprising. Like I just was like, I wonder what this will do for me. And that was D-ribose. Just regular D-ribose. Just regular D-ribose. It doesn't have to be any specific brand. I'm not talking anything. But the reality- Did you take it in powder? Powder. I just put it in your electrolyte drink, whatever. I drank it before I ran, not during the run. And what D-ribose is, D-ribose is actually, it's sugar the way your muscles use it. And granted, I took it just before an eight mile run, an eight mile uphill run. The whole run was uphill. And it was on the way back that I improved my run. So it was four miles uphill. I thought I was going fast. I was like, gee, I seem to be getting here quicker than normal. And then four miles back at a slight downgrade. And on that downhill, on the way back, like mile eight was my fastest of the entire run. And that seemed to stay with me as long as I took my D-ribose. And so what I will say to anybody who is interested in reducing your caffeine in the morning, I'm not an advocate for that. I love my coffee. I'm not giving it up. But D-ribose can help you get over that hump because it is such like this incredible energy tool. 
If you sit there and you were to consume a cup of coffee that you threw some deribose in to sweeten it up, you will find it's like you want to climb the walls. Like you can't sit still. That is genius. So I'm thinking back to when we lived in Texas, I had deribose. I actually did. But I never thought to put it in my coffee, which I'm like you, like it's sacrilege. You don't give coffee up. It's not like that's just against the law in my book. But I am so thankful that you brought that up. Well, I think anybody could benefit from it. I honestly don't think that anybody is allergic to deribose. Again, it's something that your body uses. Most of it is synthesized from corn. So it's hard to find a non-GMO source, but they are out there and you can get it in a powder form. It's sweet, so you can use it in place of a sweetener. It won't be stored as fat. Your body literally has to use it as energy because it's how your muscles use sugars. And so it's a healthy way to supplement your energy routine, especially as it relates to sports nutrition. I never found that it made me bonk or anything like that either. So I just think it's good to have on hand. The other thing I will mention is that I fell in love with actually taking electrolyte pills on my runs because, again, I tired of getting the electrolyte beverage. I just wanted clean water when I was running those long, long runs. And so Hammer, or the company that also makes Hammer Gel, made these little pills at the time that were perfect balance of potassium, sodium, and calcium carbonate, or calcium, one of the salts anyway. And so I would just take those about midway on my run. That is a great idea too. Really just helped to make sure I had enough. I wasn't worried about getting too much because my sweat at that point when I was doing 40 plus miles a week, my sweat started, it stopped being as salty. So I knew I was always kind of going up against this issue of running out of enough of those electrolytes. That's a great way to actually take note of whether your body needs it or not. And also why I like that, you might drop your water bottle by accident. It happens. What happens then? So if you have something like that, you're reminding me, I do have electrolyte pills, but I wrote down hammer. That's just something great because you can fit that in your sports bra. You can fit that anywhere. Like that is just genius. Somebody like me would drop my water bottle and be like, I'm not going back to get that. And then you're screwed. Well, if you're trying to get your personal record and you've been highly competitive, I totally get it. And I will mention too, Orlo sponsors this show. We have an omega-3 from algae, totally carbon negative, able to sequester carbon, provide this amazing omega to you. It's in the polar lipid form. Polar lipids are better absorbed into your system than any other kind of fat. They cross the blood-brain barrier. If you have an issue with your bile or anything like that, you're going to absorb them. Many people have digestive distress when they take omegas from fish, like they'll actually find themselves running to the bathroom. That doesn't happen with this product. And so for anyone listening, if you want to try out Orlo Nutrition's Omegas, you can use the coupon code NWC10 at checkout and get an extra 10% off your order. I'm going to send some to Nikki so that she can try them for her marathoning venture. I'm sure you're going to love them, Nikki. I am so thankful that you're doing that. Love this. Thank you so much. Thank you. That does happen, by the way, what she said. My husband is one of them. Like literally, I worked for a fish oil company for nine years, right? And we never produced a product that he could take without running to the bathroom. The things that people should talk about, but we don't, right? Like (laughs) the things that you should talk about. Then you know why that's important is you're not getting the benefits of the actual omega. And it really is, as we've talked about before, in my opinion, like just a super supplement. It is a non-negotiable to me. So thank you so much. I'm so excited. (laughs) Now, I also forgot to mention earlier my race day breakfast. Tell me. My race day breakfast was always just oatmeal. I know it's simple, 
But the reality is it was something I could get down quickly. Even if I had a little bit of that nervous tummy, it stayed with me longer. And it was something I tested on multiple morning runs. So like one of the things I did to prepare myself for the long distance runs is I said, okay, I know I'm going to be getting up pre-dawn. I know I'm going to be running in April in Boston. When I ran that marathon, it was 41 degrees at the starting line, which was a little cold and you're still for most of it. And so like people are trying to stay warm. I had all these layers that I ended up getting rid of along the run, but I was able to get it in quickly, just like I was on all my other early morning runs. And it didn't cause my stomach to be upset at all. It almost, I put it like this, oatmeal seems to stick to the sides of the bowl the same way it seems to stick to your ribs. So it kind of keeps with you a little bit longer than some of the other nutrient sources that I would go with. I love that. And you know what's interesting? If you do research on some of the elite runners now, Sarah Hall, Kira D'Amato, nothing's crazy. Oatmeal or it's toasted peanut butter, whatever works. It's always something that's super, super simple. So that just goes to show you don't have to have like this crazy breakfast for an ultimate performance, just something that your body can absorb. And I would never eat eggs. I never ate protein on the morning of a run. Like if I tried to do protein, like even just like any protein the morning before a long run, it would tend to kind of ruin my gut about halfway through. That's actually a good point too. So the other thing is when you eat food, it's not necessarily going to affect you right away. It's why it's so important to try during your training. Look at how you feel, like you said, halfway through, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Chances are, if something's not agreeing with you, like high protein, you're going to notice it. And that's when you kind of go, okay, not a good idea. And this would be Um, different if you're talking another sort of athletic, of course, right? We'll have to come back and talk about those other things. This is like nutrition without compromise marathon edition. But, you know, you actually could bring a good point. You know, if you're doing something that's like more weightlifting, the the conversation completely changes. But I have to give you kudos because I can't guarantee that I would have stopped to pee. I have to be honest with you. I don't know if I would have. So I think it's amazing that you did and that you got your personal best on Boston. For those of you that don't know, probably one of the most difficult courses out there, most technical courses out there. So Karina, come next January, I will be picking your brain for all of those tips. Well. The one I will leave everyone with, don't drink the BU water. Boston University, they literally, they put out these things that look like a water stop, but it's not a water stop, it's beer. And then you'll also see kegs and you'll see people who are are running and they'll do keg stands. They'll stop and do a keg stand and then keep running. It is a madhouse. It is like running in Disneyland for adults. When you're going through Wellesley College, there's girls giving away free kisses. I don't know if that still exists because of COVID, but yeah, it's like pretty intense. You know, my husband's always like, are you always going to want to qualify for Boston? I go, you know, I think it's going to depend because it's an event, right? And it might just be one of those things like, check, I'm good. But it is, from what I've heard, those things are still there. I actually remember hearing about the beer cake stands, which is baffling to me. But some people just run this for the sake of, like you said, it's their victory lap. They don't care. They just want to enjoy it. So we'll see how many times I actually go back to do this. I kind of like the local race where you can get up, don't have to get bust in and have 11 waves of people <laughs> for you, you know? <laughs> well, we can even have an offline conversation about the most annoying marathons that I've run, half marathons, because there are some that are just a lot of fun and really interesting, and then others that are just punishing. And I think a lot of it has to do with if they become boring to run. There's all sorts of reasons that, that a run can become boring, but I have my particular tells, so to speak. 
Yeah. I just want to thank you so much for taking this time with us. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. So before we wrap, I'd just like to ask one final question. What does nutrition without compromise mean to you? I love this. It means being able to use nutrition in a way that is fueling to your body and also benefiting our environment as well. So you don't necessarily have to eat foods that haven't been sustainably produced, that aren't good for you, that are just fad diets. You can actually eat real whole foods that have high nutrient quality that allow you to live a long life and do all the things that you love. Fantastic. Now, I know some of our listeners are going to want to find out more about you and what you do with the 12. Where would you prefer they go to engage with you? So I'm probably one of the only people that isn't, I mean, I check Instagram, but between me and you, Karina, it's not my specialty, but I do check it. My handle is at Nikki Boyd Nutritionist. That's two Ks and I-K-K-I-B-O-Y-D Nutritionist. That's probably the best way. Even email. I know old school, right? Nikki, N-I-K-K-I at the 12.com. And that's T-H-E-1-2. And those are the best ways to get a hold of me. So the 12.12.com. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nikki. I will be sure to include links to your social, even if you don't love it, and also the 12 with our show notes. And people can visit our website and click on that icon to send you an email if they want to. They can also always reach out to me here at hello at orlonutrition.com and I will be in touch with you. Visit orlonutrition.com for our complete blog about this episode, including features that you won't find anywhere else. I'm going to be sure that I tag Nikki for a recipe or two of her favorite carb loading recipes so that you can also join in that adventure with her. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. Nikki, hats off to you. Thank you, Karina, so much. So thankful for you hearing me on the show. Thank you. And everyone else, you can go ahead and follow us at orlonutrition.com and also Orlo Nutrition on all social platforms at just simply the handle at O-R-L-O Nutrition. I hope you'll join me as I say my parting words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either-or.